Isaiah chapter 66. And tonight's message is true and false worship. True and false worship. This last chapter is mostly about worship. Evelyn Underhill defined worship as the total adoring response of man to the one eternal God self-revealed in time. The problem with the whole world is many don't know the truth about worship. And many people think there's no right or wrong way to worship God as long as it's sincere. And that's all that matters. But if that was true, Jesus wouldn't have made it clear to the woman at the well that there was true and false worship. There was ignorant and intelligent worship in John 4, 19-24. Jesus said in John 4, 24, God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. The Pharisees thought that they were you know, the, the, the model of worship, that they were practicing the model of worship. But Jesus thought differently. As he said in Matthew 15, 8 and 9, he says, These people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And in vain they do worship me, teaching, the, 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 teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. And so we have to watch out for false worship. And we have to understand that we enter when we enter into that we enter into God's promises now and in the future through true worship. And when we give God true worship, it gives us life. And we become a message to a lost and dying world. We become a message, uh, we become a living and walking invitation for everyone to join us in the greatness and the pleasures of God that will last forever. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 3, 2 and 3, he says, you are our epistle written in our hearts, known and read by all men. Clearly you are an epistle of Christ ministered by us. Notice, written not with ink, but by the spirit of the living God. So let's begin now with verse 1 through 2a as Isaiah speaks of true worship. Verses 1 through 2a, Isaiah says, Thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne, and earth is my footstool. Where is the house that you will build me? And where is the place of my rest? For all those things my hand has made, and all those things exist, says the Lord. He says, Heaven's my throne. He says, The earth is my footstool. Could you build me a temple as good as that? Could you build me such a resting place? He says, my hands made both the heavens and the earth. And and, and my hands made everything that's in them. Can you do better than that? That's what he's asking. Even the beautiful temple in Jerusalem couldn't come close to being big enough and good enough for a God, our God, to dwell in who's omnipresent who's everywhere all the time. God cannot be restricted. He cannot be limited to any human building. In 2 Chronicles 6.18, it says, Will God indeed dwell with men on the earth? Behold, heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot contain you, how much less this temple, Solomon said, which I have built. You see, it's not how beautiful the building is that we worship in. 
It's not the architectural design that draws God to a place of worship. It's not the furnishings. It's the devotedness, the devotedness of the worshiper that decides where God will dwell. Many of the beautiful churches in England, beautiful architecture, are just about empty because the people are empty of the Spirit of God. Isaiah, now, Isaiah isn't putting down Solomon here because he wanted to rebuild the temple. But sometimes we're tempted to think that if we build a beautiful facility with all the latest gadgets and all the, 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 the latest architecture, God's going to dwell in it. But we can't box God in. We can't control him or get God's blessing by honoring him with things. And it's great that, you know, I, I haven't read anywhere in the New Testament that God says or that, that he cares about our church buildings. Hey, they used to worship by rivers out in, in the desert. Because you know what? Jesus is the temple. John two nineteen. Jesus is the temple. Even in the Old Testament, he warned the people about the potential of misunderstanding worship. Jesus said in Matthew 18, 20, where two or three are gathered in my name, I'm in the midst of them. I'm there. Charles Spurgeon said this, the presence of Jesus is the fixed center of the assembly, the warrant for its coming together and the power with which it acts. The church, however small, is gathered in his name. Jesus is there first. He said, I am there in the midst of them. We are gathered together by the holy impulses of Christian brotherhood and our meeting is in the name of Jesus and therefore he is near. Not only to the leader or to the minister, but in the midst and therefore near to each worshiper. God doesn't bless buildings. He doesn't bless orders of service or styles of preaching. What God blesses now is in the last part of verse 2. Notice what he says. But on this one I will look, and on him who is poor and of a contrite spirit or a repentant spirit, and who trembles at my word. Those are the ones that he blesses. Those who are humble, who have repentant hearts, and tremble at his word. Again, God doesn't look at the building. He looks at those inside the building. Adrian Rogers says, if a church is not supernatural, it is superficial. And without the Holy Spirit, the church is just a building. Wood, windows, doors, glass, whatever. That's all it is. To tremble at God's word means to respect what God says and, and be fearful and, and, and fearful of disobeying God. The psalmist said in Psalm 119, 120, I tremble in fear of you. I stand in awe of your word or your regulations your statutes all again words for his word the jews experienced this trembling when ezra exposed their sins in ezra 9 4 when he read the scriptures to them and exposed their sins the prophet habakkuk experienced the trembling before the lord when he saw the vision of god's judgment in habakkuk three sixteen. saul of tarsus trembled when he met the lord on the road to damascus in acts 9 6 King Jehoiakim, on the other hand, was a different story. He didn't tremble at God's word. He tried to destroy the word in Jeremiah 36. Paul, he urged us in Philippians 2.12, work out your own salvation. That is, work out your Christian life with fear and trembling. The thing that God blesses is simple. 
It's a person who humbly trembles at his word with no strings attached. No preconditions. We shouldn't think of, uh, of when, we ju- when we sing in here, is that's, the only, that's only worship. And that the sermon is something else. Just like a, a big Bible study. True worship is listening to God's word with a desire to hear, a desire to believe, and with the intention to obey. Preaching a sermon is worship. On Sunday mornings, pre- uh, preaching a sermon is worship. Hearing a sermon is worship. Our tithes and offerings is worship. That's why we call it a worship service. It's not just the singing part at the beginning. Everything that we do is a worship to God here. What God looks to bless isn't the one with the fanciest order of service or the simplest, but the one who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at his word. The problem understanding this isn't with God. The problem is with men. Why? Because God uses men to communicate his word. And you know what? Every preacher is defective. We're all flawed men. And every preacher gives the listener some reason not to listen. Though we don't mean to, but we do. Maybe it's our personality. Our our responsibility is to keep the complications to a minimum. By your responsibility as the listener, your responsibility as a listener is to overlook my flaws and mistakes and listen to the word of God. Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 2.13, he says, We never stop thanking God that when you received, notice, his message from us, you didn't think of our words as mere human ideas. You see, he said, we thank you that when, when, we, when we preached to you, you know, you received the message from us. You didn't, you didn't consider what we said as our own ideas. He said, you accepted what we said as the very word of God, which of, our, of which, of course, it is. And he said, and this word continues to work in you who believe. And that word believe there means obey. The word of God is effective in a person's life when they obey it. And that's what God blesses. When you can see by your reading your Bible that the preacher's message is coming from the Bible, it changes everything. When you're hearing isn't the preacher's thoughts, or what you're hearing isn't the preacher's thoughts or ideas. You're hearing the word of God. You're not receiving it as the word of man, but as the word of God. And this is the true worship of deeply worshipful listening. We have to be careful that when we go to church, we just don't sit back in church and we begin to critique everything that's going on. You know, evaluating the pastor, the message, the service, and then giving our rating. You know, is it a three-point sermon? Is there an outline? Is there notes? Is the clarity? What, what is he wearing according to your likes or dislikes? If you worship the way God defines worship, you'll welcome his word with a trembling excitement, whatever he says. And I'll never forget a man that I, I knew at a church. I won't mention the church. It does. It, it's, it's okay. Calvary Chapel and Golden Springs. You know, they have those big pillars towards the back. And if you got there late, guess where you sat? Right behind one of those square pillars. And I had a guy tell me one time, he said, man, I was so humbled by this this elderly gentleman who who was sitting next to me on the other side of the pole. He said, 
Because he said, I was squirming and I was trying to look at Pastor Raw and I was trying to see him preaching up there and, and I was just fidgeting and I was just so upset. And, and the, the elderly man said, son, are you okay? He said, yeah. He said, I can't see Pastor Raw up there. And he goes, son, you can have my seat. I came to hear the word, not see the pastor. That guy just said, man, I will, I'll, I'll never forget that. And that's what we're to be here. We're to hear, to hear the word, hear the word of God. And if he's preaching the word of God, we're hearing what we should be hearing. You see, and if you worship the way God defines it again, you'll welcome his word. You'll be excited to hear it, whatever, you know, the, the word is saying. James tells us in chapter 1, verse 21, So get rid of all the filth and evil in your lives, that is the judgmental spirit, and humbly accept the word that God has planted in your hearts because it has pow the power to save your souls. The hungry heart wants to be filled. It wants to be satisfied with the word from God. That's what it means to be humble and contrite. That's the kind of worship that God blesses. That, now let's look at the verses 3 through 4, the false worship. Verses 3 through 4. Isaiah says, He who kills a bull as if he slays a man. He who sacrifices a lamb as if he, he breaks a dog's neck. He who offers a grain offering as if he offers swine's blood. He who burns incense as if he blesses an idol. Just as they have chosen their own ways and their soul delights in their own abominations. So will I choose their delusions and bring their fears on them. Because when I called, no one answered. And when I spoke, they did not hear. But they did evil before my eyes and chose that in which I do not delight. God says regarding false worship, those who choose their own ways and enjoy their evil sins, he says, Isaiah said, God's not going to accept their offerings. When these he says, when these people sacrifice a bull, it's no more acceptable than a human sacrifice. When these people sacrifice a, a lamb, it's as if they sacrificed a dog. He says, when they bring an offering of grain, they might as well offer the blood of a pig. And when they burn frankincense, as if, it's as if they blessed an idol. And God said through Isaiah, I will send them great trouble, all the things that they feared. Why? Because when I called, they didn't answer it. When I spoke, they didn't listen. They deliberately sinned before my eyes and chose to do what they know that I despise. All these acts mentioned here in verses 4 through 5. All of these acts of worship, now they were prescribed by the law and God. But God is saying here, even though I asked for this kind of worship, it's pagan to me. Why? And, and, and it's disgusting to me. And he says, stop it. Why? Because when I called, you didn't answer. And when I spoke, you didn't listen. In other words, they were giving God defiled worship. It wasn't biblical. They were stubborn. They were mistaken and unteachable. And even today... Church becomes a pagan ritual to God if we're not listening to his word and we're, and we're doing what we think is right, what we feel is right. He can see the deceitful purpose behind it. To do church, even in the most religious ways, but do it with a closed heart is evil in God's eyes. And it's like he says, it's choosing what he doesn't delight in and he says, I will destroy it. Verses five and six. Hear the word of the Lord, 
you who tremble at his word, your brethren who hated you, who cast you out for my name's sake. Let the Lord be glorified that we may see your joy, but they shall be ashamed. The sound of noise from the city, a voice from the temple, the voice of the Lord who fully repays his enemies. Isaiah says, hear what God said. All of you who tremble at his words, your own people hate you and throw you out for being loyal to my name. Let the Lord be honored. They scoff. Be joyful in him, but they'll put you, in, they'll put you to shame. What is all the commotion in the city? He says, what's that terrible noise from the temple? It's the voice of the Lord taking vengeance upon his enemies. In other words, God will choose between the true and the false, between what's real and what isn't real. And Jesus said, let the wheat and the tares grow together and I will separate them. Now the time has come. The Pharisee who was so careful in his religious practice is to be cast out. And remember the tax collector who stood afar off just beating his chest in repentance? God says he will be received. God will one day finally deal with the enemies of Israel, which are his enemies too. Those who come against God's people, they're God's enemies too. Verses 7 through 9. Before she was in labor, speaking of Israel, before she was in labor, she gave birth. Before her pain came, she delivered a male child. Who has heard such a thing? Who has seen such things? Shall the earth be made to give birth in one day, or shall a nation be born at once? For as soon as Zion was in labor, she gave birth to her children. Verse 9. Shall I bring to the time of birth and not cause delivery, says the Lord? Shall I, who's, who, uh, shall I who cause delivery shut up the womb, says your Lord? In other words, before the birth pains even started, God says, Jerusalem gives birth to a son. Who's ever seen anything like that before? It's as strange as this. Whoever heard of such a thing? Has a nation ever been born in a single day? Has a country ever come forth, you know, in, in a mere moment? But by the time Jerusalem's birth pains began, it says her children will be born. He said, would I ever bring this nation to the point of birth and then not deliver it? Asked the Lord. He said, no, I would never keep this nation from being born. Isaiah here now in these verses is looking way off into the future. The church appears here as a mother and a miracle is taking place. This mother is giving birth, Israel is giving birth without labor pain. Israel's return to the land will be so amazingly quick that it will be like a woman giving birth to a son before she had any labor pains. You see, God doesn't start something and not finish it. And just as surely as a, womb, a woman's womb opens for delivery, God says he's going to do the same for, for, for Jerusalem. He's going to do what he sets out to do. And this is the reason for the rejoicing. Look at verses 10 through 14 now. He says, Rejoice with Jerusalem and be glad with her, all you who love her. Rejoice for joy with her, all you who mourn for her that you may feed and be satisfied with the consolation of her bosom, that you may drink deeply and be delighted with the abundance of her glory. For thus says the Lord, Behold, I will extend peace to her like a river, and the glory of the Gentiles like a flowing stream. Then you shall feed on her sides, you shall be carried and be dandled on her knees. Verse 13, As one whom is as one whom his mother comforts, so I will comfort you, and you shall be comforted in Jerusalem. 
When you see this, your heart shall rejoice and your bones shall flourish like grass. The hand of the Lord shall be known to his servants and his indignation to his enemies. Isaiah says here of God, rejoice with Jerusalem and be glad with her, all of you who love her and all of you who mourn for her. He says, drink deeply of her glory, even as like an infant drinks at its mother's comforting breasts. This is what the Lord is saying here. The Lord says, I will give Jerusalem a river of peace and prosperity, and the wealth of the nations will flow to her. And her children will be nursed at her breasts, carried in her arms, and held on her lap. And I will comfort you there in Jerusalem like a mother comforts her child. And God says through Isaiah, when you see these things, your heart is going to rejoice. You're going to flourish like grass. And everyone's going to see the Lord's hands of, hand of blessing on his servants and his anger. They're going to see his anger against his enemies. So God sends his blessings, blessing to the nations through his church. And here's a note of joy and a note of abundance. Jerusalem is thought of as a mother and the great comfort that she gets when she nourishes her children abundantly. And those who love Israel, man, they're going to be blessed. And those who pray for her are going to prosper. Verses 15 through 17. For behold, the Lord will come with fire and with his chariots like a whirlwind to render his anger with fury and his rebuke with, with flames of fire. For by fire and by his sword, the Lord will judge all flesh and the slain of the Lord shall be made many. Those who sanctify themselves and purify themselves to go to the gardens after an idol in the midst, eating swine's flesh and the abomination and the mouse shall be consumed together, says the Lord. Isaiah says, see, the Lord is coming with fire. And, his, and, in his, and with his swift chariots, they roar like a, like a whirlwind. He's going to bring punishment with the fury of his anger. And, the, and he's going to punish the world by fire and by his sword, Isaiah says. He's going to judge the earth and many are going to be killed by him. Those who, those who consecrate and purify themselves in a sacred garden with its idol in the center, feasting on pork and rats and other detestable meats, they're going to come to a terrible end, God says. You see, the people, what Isaiah is talking about here is the people were sneaking off into groves, to those, those, those trees, those groves of trees. They would sneak off there to eat pork and rats. Both of those things outlawed by Old Testament law. Now, we can do the same thing in a way, in a sense, whenever we sneak off and we do our own thing that we know is not of God. And to those who wouldn't respond to his love, God pleads to them through fire and a sword, through judgment. Isaiah here sees God angrily destroying all false worship forever, whether it's old or new, whether it's modern, liberal, or conservative. If it's false, God is going to destroy it. God will come in his war chariot to finish his work of getting rid of the filth and the idols of our false religion in this world. Now, verse 15, Isaiah is talking about Jesus. Look at, for behold, the Lord will come with fire and with his chariots like a whirlwind to render his anger with fury and his rebuke with, with flames of fire. 
So Isaiah is talking about Jesus here in verse 50 when he's revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire and he's going to bring punishment on those who don't know God and on those who don't obey the gospel of Jesus Christ. They're going to suffer the punishment of eternal destruction forever. Forever being away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power and might when he comes on that day. Verse 18 for I know their works and their thoughts, and it shall be that I will gather all nations and tongues, and they shall come and see my glory. He says, I can see what they're doing. He says, I know what they're thinking. So I'm going to gather all nations and peoples together, and they will see my glory. All nations are going to, be, are going to appear before the Lord. The Lord Jesus has mentioned this in Matthew chapter 25, verses 31 through 32. Jesus said, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the holy angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them from one another as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. And when that happens at that time, a great multitude of of Gentiles, they're going to be saved as well as people from as the Jews from Israel. The nations are going to come and worship in Jerusalem. Verse 19. I will set a sign among them, and those among them who escape I will send to the nations, to Tarshish and to Pol and Lud, who draw the bow and Tubal and Javan to the coastlands afar off who have not heard my fame nor seen my glory and they shall declare my glory among the Gentiles. God says, I will perform a sign among them. I will give them a sign and I will send those who survive to be messengers to the nations, to Tarshish, to the, to the Libyans and Lydians who are famous uh, as archers, to Tubal and Greece. And to all the lands beyond the sea that have not heard of my fame or seen my glory. There, there they will declare my glory to the nations. God's people, the Jews, will be sent out as missionaries to all parts of the world to carry his message of salvation to those who are in faraway places who survived the tribulation. He said to Tarshish, which is Spain, to Pol, those are the Libyans in North Africa, to Lud, the, to the Lydians, uh, in Western Asia Minor, to Tubal, Northern Eastern uh, Asia Minor, and Javan, which is Greece. Verse 20. Then they shall bring all your brethren for an offering to the Lord out of all nations, on horses and in chariots and in litters, on mules and on camels, to my holy mountain, Jerusalem, says the Lord, as the children of Israel bring an offering in a clean vessel into the house of the Lord. He says, they're going to bring the remnant of your people. They'll bring the remnant of your people back from every nation to Jerusalem. They'll bring them to my holy mountain in Jerusalem as an offering to the Lord. He says, they're going to ride on horses. They're going to come in chariots and wagons and on mules and in camels, says the Lord. This describes the great gathering that will take place in the kingdom age, the millennium, resulting in the Jews returning to Jerusalem. Again, some are going to come on horses, some in chariots, covered wagons, some again on their mules, and the rest on camels. And they're going to come as an offering, a foreign offering to the Lord. He says, on my holy mountain, Jerusalem. 
Notice it's to resemble the clean offering brought in a clean vessel to the Lord. Holiness is God's ideal for his people. Verses 21 through 23. And I will also take some of them for priests and Levites, says the Lord. For as the new heavens and the new earth, which I will make, shall remain before me, says the Lord. So shall your descendants and your name remain. And it shall come to pass that from one new moon to another and from one Sabbath to another, all flesh shall come to worship before me, says the Lord. He says, I will appoint some of them to be my priests and Levites. He says, as surely as my new heavens and earth will remain, so will you always be my people with a name that will never disappear. And all humanity will come to worship me from week to week and from month to month. What a great day that's going to be. When the Jews join all people in coming to Jerusalem to worship. Now, if, if Isaiah would have stopped there, it would have been a good place to end the chapter. But he didn't. He ended with verse 24. Let's look at it. And they shall go forth and look upon the corpses of the men who have transgressed against me. For their worm dies. I'm sorry, for their worm does not die and their fire is not quenched and they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. He says here about verse 24, he says, now as they go out, these people that are going to be going to Jerusalem, as they go out, they're going to see the dead bodies of those who rebelled against God, he says. And he says, for them, he says, the worm, they'll see the worm that never dies. The worm that, 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 that devours them will never die. And the fire that burns them will never go out, God says. All who pass by are going to look at them with utter horror. The last verse obviously isn't as nice as the verse before. Because it doesn't speak of the joy of the millennial kingdom. It doesn't speak of the amazing joy of the new heaven and the new earth, but it speaks of the fire and the worms that will never die. It speaks of God's judgment for those who rebel and reject him. It's speaking of hell. The fire and the worms that never will die. Hell isn't something that's enjoyable to talk about. But Jesus gave more teachings on hell than he did on heaven. Why? Because he knew it was real. And the Holy Spirit moved Isaiah to end his book, not just with the hope of the coming kingdom, but also a warning about the reality of eternal damnation in hell. And a lot of people today don't believe in hell. You know, their thinking is, how can a God of love actually send people to hell? And yet the Lord says very clear, it's a place to be thought about. It's a place to be reckoned with because it's real. And I want to close with Luke 16, verses 19 through 31, where Jesus taught about the certain rich man. He said, who was, you know, splendidly clothed in purple and fine linen, and he lived in luxury every day. And at this rich man's gate laid a poor man named Lazarus, and he was covered with sores. And Jesus says, as Lazarus laid there at the rich man's gate, Begging for scraps from the rich man's table, the dogs would come and lick his open sores. And then Jesus says, finally, that poor man died 
And he was carried by the angels to be with Abraham. And then the rich man died. And he was buried. And his soul went to the place of the dead, Hades. And then there in torment, the rich man sees Abraham off in the distance. And Lazarus was next to him. And, and, and the rich man shouted over to Abraham, Father Abraham, have some pity on me. He says to, to Abraham, send Lazarus over here to dip the tip of his finger in water <clears throat> and cool my tongue. <clears throat> he says, I'm in anguish. I'm suffering in these flames. But Abraham said to him, son, remember during your lifetime, you had everything you wanted. Lazarus had nothing. And so now Lazarus is being comforted and you are in torment. And besides that, there's no way that you can go from there to here or us from here, from here to there. He said, there's a great chasm, this great gulf between us that separates us. And no one can cross over to you from here and no one can cross over to us from there. And then the rich man said, please, Father Abraham. Notice the different in attitude of him. Please send somebody to my brothers. Please, Abraham. I'm in, I'm in torment. Please at least send uh, Abraham to my father's house. Because I have five brothers there and I, I want them to be warned so they don't end up in this place of torment. Notice how it becomes an evangelist now. Hey, send somebody to my family to tell them about this place. I don't want them to come here. Abraham said to him, Hey, Moses and the prophets have warned them. No, Father Abraham. You see, if Abraham, if someone is sent to them from the dead, they'll repent of their sins. And they'll turn to God. But Abraham said, hey, if they won't listen to Moses and the prophets, they're not going to even listen to someone who rises from the dead. And someone did, Jesus Christ. People are in two categories. Those who say, your will be done, God. And those who say, my will be done. God doesn't send people to hell. God won't send these people to hell. But if they respond positively, determined to do their own will, God will allow them to go there. And that's why hell isn't a contradiction to God's love. Rather, it's a confirmation of God's love. God loves you so much. And, and even in this instance, you know what? If that's where you want to go. I'm not going to change your mind. I've tried. Because God is love. He won't force man to do his will. He won't force him to do what he doesn't want to do. He will let man have his own way. But it will always be, without exception, to lead them to hell. To have their own way. To do their own thing. God never intended anyone to be in hell. Jesus said in Matthew 25, 41, Then he will also say to those on the left hand, Depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire. Notes prepared for who? The devil and his angels. Jesus didn't say it was prepared for the devil and his angels and man. 
And even when we choose to do our will, he didn't give up on us. When we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He still sent Jesus, his son, to die on a cross at Calvary. And he paid the price of hell for all of my sin and your sin. Here's why. Paul said in Romans 3, 10 through 18, There is none righteous. No, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good. No, not one. Paul emphasizes it twice. Not one. He says their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues they have, have practiced deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet, notice their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace they have not known, because there is no fear of God before their eyes. These verses here tell us why this world is so messed up. Because all have sinned. This is the corrupt nature of man apart from God. These verses, three, uh, Romans 3, 10 through 18. It's man's nature and character is corrupt be, uh, apart from God. We're all sinners. There's no exceptions because all have sinned, Paul said, and, and fallen short of the glory of God. Every single person is here in Romans 3, 10 through 18. But Jesus paid the price totally. And if we just believe Jesus Christ died for us, we will be saved eternally. Jesus cared enough about you and me to tell us the truth about hell. And we need to listen to what Jesus says. And if you're not a believer, this needs to be the day that you become a believer. That it becomes the day of your salvation. Jesus died for you. And today's the day to start living for him in light of what the Bible says about heaven and hell and the reality of it. Father, we come before you in Jesus' name and we thank you, God, that the scriptures, they speak about the greatness of God, the goodness of God, and where we'll spend eternity in Christ. But we thank you, Lord, that you also warn us about the judgment of hell. And where one will end up if they rebel and reject the provision that God has given us, His Son, so that we can escape the judgment of hell. And it's something to take very seriously. And just as this rich man took it very serious when he got to hell, then it's too late for him to do anything about it. He couldn't get out of there. There's no amount of pleading, begging, crying that he could have done to get out of hell. It was real to him after it was too late. Don't let that happen to you. God has made a way of escape through his son, Jesus. And if you're here tonight and you're not sure of salvation, or maybe you're not saved, maybe somebody watching tonight isn't saved, isn't sure of their salvation, you can be. 
by confessing to Christ that you are a sinner and asking for his forgiveness. Pray and ask Jesus for his forgiveness, confessing that you are a sinner and telling Jesus you want to receive him as your Lord and your Savior and to fill you with the Holy Spirit and to thank him for dying on the cross for you and ask him to help you to live every day for him. And that you'll follow him all the days of your life. And to thank him for dying on that cross. That you may be saved. And you pray those things in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen. And if you.